0: Hey, everybody. Sean King here. I'm on sabbatical. So we're rerunning some of our favorite episodes of The Breakdown and other North Star podcasts. I hope you enjoy them, and I'll see you again in August with brand new content. Mm -hmm. The, the, the The Breakdown.
1: So this second episode of Sick Empire is called Hood Eats. And I'm exploring the ways that black diets influence our social wellness. And as I was interviewing the guest, I was reminded of an episode of The Boondocks. Now, The Boondocks is a show from the early 2000s about two young black brothers who live with their grumpy grandfather in a suburban area. And I remember watching an episode where the grandfather's famous home-cooked fried chicken dinner had won him a restaurant in an affluent part of town. And as the community visits this restaurant and eats the fried chicken dinners, they all become addicted to it. And the neighborhood turns from this cozy and quiet, beautiful place to a crime-infested dump. And the people go broke and start robbing and stealing from each other, all to get their fried chicken dinner fix. So the episode ends with the restaurant being closed down after a woman who had become addicted to the fried chicken sues. And once the restaurant is gone, the neighborhood regains its healthy citizens, the fried chicken is out, the fresh produce is in, and the community is thriving in perfect health. Let me say first that this is not going to be a show forcing a plant-based diet down your throat or trying to frighten you off of fried dinners. (laughs) This episode features educators who dedicate their time to offering culinary and gardening knowledge to folks in the hood. So I live in the heart of the Bronx and the links that I have to go to to get fresh produce are criminal. The grocery stores are extraordinarily overpriced, and it's not uncommon to see rotting produce on the shelves. I think that people who live in neighborhoods like mine accept these norms for a few reasons. Uh, limited mobility to get access to better options, learned eating habits, and yeah, sure, junk food addiction. But I think one of the main reasons is knowledge. I'm talking about knowledge of how harmful the junk food in the hood is to the brain and the body, and there is very little education on gardening and farming and cooking in low-income areas. Now, I should say that I didn't grow up in the hood, and I didn't grow up in a hippie, plant-based household either. I'm from the Midwest, and we grew up in a home where my stepfather and brother would go deer hunting this time of year and hang their kill in the garage like a butcher shop. My mother had a big garden in the back, and she tended to it in the summer. And though there was always fresh food around us, there was really no restrictions on our diets whatsoever. And when my mother had to have chemotherapy when I was a teenager, watching her battle cancer and and watching her healing was rough for the whole family. And during this time, I started to change my eating habits. I stopped eating anything with eyes all of a sudden, and my family was quite shocked. They would always ask me why, why was I not eating meat anymore, and in hindsight, I think watching my mother's illness scared me straight in a sense and subconsciously led me to selecting healthier foods to attempt to control my own health. This entire season of Sick Empire focuses on healing communities of color in every possible way. This episode, you'll hear from two educators who are healing the hood with their knowledge of food, cooking, and aquaponic gardening. These are two of the most inspiring and motivational conversations I've ever had, and I am honored to share their stories. I'm Brandon Janice, and you're listening to Sick Empire.
0: Sick Empire. Sick Empire.
1: First, we are going to hear the talk I had with Kurt Evans. He's a chef, an author, an activist, and an educator. He is deeply involved in healing folks who got caught up in the criminal justice system. He spends part of his time teaching culinary arts to teenagers on Rikers, as well as returning citizens who have spent so many years behind bars that they are old enough to be his grandfather. Listen to him talk about his community-based projects that feed the hood for free, The politician attended dinners he curates to end mass incarceration. He tells a heart-wrenching story about how he watched his culinary students on Rikers Island cry in therapy sessions. And he talks about how recently, during a pandemic, he opened a pizza shop in Philly that employs a staff of mostly returning citizens. So let me ask you this to start off. What did food and community look like for you growing up
0: food and community was everything me growing up far as in uh, uh my father's side of my family uh had a strong nation of islam background my family was close-knit my grandmom had 10 kids so my grandmom she hosted card games she was, she wrote numbers pretty much fed everyone food so food always was in my in my life
1: can you talk to me about when you started aligning your culinary work with social justice?
0: Five, six years ago. Um, I started uh working with my friends uh Ben Miller and Christina Martinez. Uh that restaurant is called South Philly Barbacoa. They were big champions for um undocumented worker rights. I would help them on their events. That sparked something to me. It was like, you know, I want to do something for my community. People that look like me. I want to do something for people in my community. Things that help people affect people that I know. And at that time, uh, the New Jim Crow was out, the Khalif Browder story, a lot of a lot of things like that was happening, and a lot of people, um, a lot of people don't know mass incarceration is more systemic than anything. So people just think like, oh, you know, people are going to jail, but not knowing. This is things that have been in place, that's been going on as a structure for this.
1: Can you give me a rundown of what your EMI or end mass incarceration dinners look like?
0: So usually uh, a, a restaurant will donate the space out, maybe a small cafe to about 25 people, um, to uh, a big venue space where it's 150 people. And um, we pick a topic, uh, usually done over 20 dinners now, every topic, whether it's uh, recidivism, uh, reentry, preschool to prison pipeline, uh, mental health and uh, drug addiction, uh, diversion courts, um, the bail system. I can go on, go on and on all of these topics that affect, uh, that have things to do with mass incarceration we, we bring someone in who curates the dinner. So, you know, I come out, I, I give a little spill about who I am, what I do and, uh, talk about the menu. But then I say, you know, this is your, uh, your host and the person that use these hosts in the dinner. They have dealt with the topic at hand extensively. The first dinner I had at the time the deputy lieutenant governor for Pennsylvania came and like mm. other like political figures had came I didn't know so I started googling people so all my dinners after that came to the point where I didn't want no one to have a comfortable experience so if some person somebody bought 3 tickets those three people would not sit close to each other we use food as a vehicle to talk about mass incarceration so uh, usually you go to events and it's like, hey, we're going to this event and it's going to be food there. But it's like you're going for the food and you're going to hear about mass incarceration. So we sit people not together. Um, meals are family style. And, you know, that family style helps people say, hey, can you pass me this? Can you, you know, you? it forces you to engage with the person next to you. Things like that.
1: Well, now they're digital, right?
0: Yes. Yes. I started doing digital ones.
1: Mm hmm. This is what's fascinating to me about your work because, I mean, to be quite frank, like that, that is a lot. That could be enough, right? Or that could be at least viewed as enough, but the, mass incar- the end mass incarceration dinners aren't even the only thing that you, you do um, to help the community using food as a vehicle. So can you talk to me about the kind of more of the education side of things that you do? Specifically, I'm interested in hearing you speak about the programs that you teach returning citizens how to cook in.
0: I was working at Drive Change and um, Drive Change is is also a nonprofit in New York. Uh, We were teaching formerly incarcerated youth ages 18 to 25 culinary skills. It started out as a a training program. It's also a really good workforce development because kids they were in Rikers. I mean, I did about three cycles at drive change, and all of my kids, some of them were coming out of Rikers after being at the band Rikers for two, three years. So some of these kids were eighteen, nineteen just getting out of Rikers, and they were really focused on like getting their lives together. Um, I talked to a few kids still to this day, and um, Drive Change gave them uh, like a family. Like uh, that's one thing I learned about. I do a lot of work project based learning, especially when I'm dealing with like the youth, because like it feels as though like they're really competitive. And when it's project based, they like they hold each other like accountable for what they need to do, and. um culinary class, teaching them knife skills. We, I would always throw some type of like testing, like we're going to do this test. What team gets it done fastest? They get like a little, they get like a little, you know, some type of incentive. And it's always, always been like really good to see like kids, you know, that really had like a lot of their youth stripped away from, uh, like just get back into being like kids, Now I'm at the Doe Fund and it switched up a gear because now I'm dealing with adult men. Majority, a high majority of the the population has have been in prison for more than 20, 25 years. What? Yes. So uh, so I'm now I'm talking to guys that are like literally my father's age and uh, could be some could be older than my grandfather, too. Fun is a homeless shelter that teach uh, essential skills, soft skills for men, homeless men in New York City. So they give them housing and they also teach them life skills and provide with job training to partner them up with jobs in the future. So in this culinary classes, it's, it's also different from you know teaching the younger youth because the youth sometimes, the youth is like, they're young, they're eager to learn it. Now, sometimes I'm talking to someone like who's like my senior, and they're like, you know, they're stuck in they're stuck in their ways of doing things. So, but one thing I can say about dealing with uh, the the classes that I'm teaching at the Doe Fund, um, a lot more people are. It's a lot more seriousness because I guess like you know, as your kid, you're still finding your way. So now, with the Doe Fund, a lot of people are like, this is what I'm gonna do. Uh, this is what I want to do. You know, they that phase in their life. So working with these guys um, is all different learning levels too, because some people can't read as well as others uh, writing. So yeah, it's, it's, it's always, it's always, you know, it's always a challenge, but it's, you know, I find, I find ways to relate to people, find ways to way to people. So it's like sometimes, you know, I got to get like really real, like with people, you know, from the streets myself. So like when when I'm talking to people about doing things correctly, I may like use terminology from the streets or like, you know, like if you're going to bag this, if you're going to bag this work up, how many grams is in it? And you know, like, it's just funny, like talking to them like this and
2: they actually get
0: it, switch it up when you're talking to different people, you know, that the cold switch, even then like learning is still, still important too.
1: Where do your frustrations lie in doing this work? Cuz even though you're doing great work, I can only imagine that it would be better if you didn't if these people just didn't didn't fall victim to the system. If they didn't need you. It seems like that would be more rewarding than if people were just treated humanely and not locked in cages and not getting out, you know, at 60 years old not, you know, having fully developed reading and writing skills. It seems like that, the, the work that you're doing, it almost, like, hopefully one day you won't need to do it because there will be no need for it. So I'm, I'm wondering, like, when, even when you're doing this work and even though you, you're the perfect person to do it, I'm wondering, like, where do your frustrations lie in, in the work that you do?
0: It's very frustrating that I actually even have to do the work one guy was talking about he was selling marijuana he's like like pounds of it like he' was selling about a pound the fact that now like people are pharmaceutically medically using marijuana and it's, it's growing about a ton now it's like man and some some of the guys were like like not even island offenses like drug charges this was like frustrating that I have to mm-hmm. that I actually have to do this work mm-hmm. because of the things that were put in place for for people like this to not succeed mm-hmm. like even like the youth the, the younger the younger kids i mean
1: mm-hmm.
0: it's like sad it's like if they weren't cutting programs in schools and uh, uh, diagnosing a lot of these kids with um with uh, diseases and stuff that they don't really even have like mental mental issues where it's like you know you just gotta challenge kids a little differently we outsourced a lot of programs to a therapy session like once a week at drive change and man, it made the kids uh, become family because they would have like therapy sessions together. And I said in like one, like they were crying one day, like a lot of the kids like bust down crying and it's like, yeah, cause this is like the closest thing I had a family and stuff like that. That's, that's just like the hardest part about it is like having to do it because of things that were, Done to have people in these positions.
1: hmm I mean, this is, this is like magical, almost, this work that you're doing. Especially, for example, with the pizza joint that you're opening. Correct me if I'm wrong, not all of the employees are returning citizens.
0: Yep. Um. And I, I really want to make it like all of the employees. All of Can the I employees. Can I ask
1: you... A very real question.
0: Sure.
1: Do you get any pushback from people for hiring and training formerly incarcerated employees?
0: No, I've I've, I've never got it. But, um, uh, but one thing I've learned about being free—this is my piece of shop. I own it. I don't. I don't have. I don't really have nobody to answer to. So, like, when you're free, you can really do whatever you want. <laughs> and I noticed that, mm-hmm. like, 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 when you're when you're like legitimately free, like, mm-hmm. like, like I don't I don't have to say like, like I put I put this in a in a community that's really like the hood. I mean, we're about like at least six miles from like the closest thing that's gentrified. So we we're in the neighborhood. Whereas people of the community um, actually um, hired two people that live directly in the community. A lady came in. And you know, we just had a conversation, and and I was like, "Have you been formally incarcerated?" She was like, "She kind of got sad." She was like, "Yeah, but you know, it was." I was like, "No, that's that's good." <laughs> and she's like, "Really?" I was like, "No, oh, that's good." I was like, "No, that's cool." Oh,
1: that's
0: beautiful. Yeah, that's cool. So, and she's like, "All right, thank you, thank you, chef." It would come different if I was the executive chef somewhere, and I hired someone, and then I had to follow the rules of what someone else would want me to do at their establishment. And I've been getting nothing but support uh from community, community leaders. A lot of people in the industry have been supporting me so I purchased the building with my partner about three years ago and we never really got it going. But when the pandemic hit, like I said, that just that time of nothingness. It like I got business plans, menus and Everything, everything together with, within, like, two and a half weeks.
1: That is, like, so amazing to hear. I recently interviewed an activist named Linda Sarsour, mm-hmm. and she is, I mean, she's amazing. She's, like, down, actually, in Kentucky fighting for Breonna Taylor right now. And she said something that I thought was so profound. She said, A pandemic cannot stop people from fighting for justice. And because she lives in New York, you know, she moved to Kentucky, you know, to fight for Breonna Taylor, a black woman who she does not know. Mm -hmm. This kind of work that you've done, the social work that you've done, the culinary work that you've done, you've in the middle of this pandemic, you've moved it online, gone to, to these digital spaces. And I'm wondering if you can talk about like the commitment to the work a lot of my friends who work in restaurants right now are not working and i'm wondering if you can talk about that like commitment to the work that drive that passion for the work that kind of keeps you going even in the midst of a pandemic
0: when i started these these dinners i wanted to you know bring awareness and once once the pandemic hit everything like halted for everyone like you know, the first couple of weeks of, like, maybe losing your job uh, and you're in a food industry, it was cool, you know, get to relax. You know, you're not working a 12-, 14-hour shift anywhere. And I, and I would tell people, it's, it's okay, it's okay to just, to not do nothing, you know, because sometimes that, that break is what's needed. I was a part of a chef collective, I'm still a part of it. We just formed a nonprofit called Everybody Eats. And... We do bi-weekly food giveaways, so we give away CSA boxes, um, farm boxes with produce, vegetable, milk, dairy. We get volunteers. We give away meals, um, and with the wintertime coming, we're ready to shift gears into uh, doing food security for the elderly and college students.
1: That's so inspiring. So, are you kind of actively looking for people to to help you, like in the Philly area, or even with your digital events? How can people who hear this and and like what th- you're doing and want to be involved, um, how can they? How can they do that?
0: Oh man, my website is www.chefkurtevans.com. Uh, dot uh, com. Instagram is Kurt Cooks. Uh, you guys can hit me up if anybody wants to work together. I'm always looking for help with things. Actually, my next few dinners will be in New York. I signed Tom Colicchio uh, up. Uh, his restaurant is Craft, and he's like the founder of Top Chef. And his restaurant wants to do uh, a EMI dinner, provide the food. And it was very generous they would donate a portion of their proceeds from, you know, the food that they got to the nonprofit, too. So, uh, yeah, if anybody wants to work. And then always can donate to the Doe Fund or Drive Change. If you're not, if you know, if you have the means, you could donate to those two uh, criminal justice reform organizations.
1: Brilliant. Thank you so much. This was really, really great. When I think about Chef Kirk, Kurt- and his work with returning citizens, I think about how incarcerated people do not have agency over their meals, and that same sense of diet regulation has been strategically forced on people who live in non-gentrified Brooklyn and non-gentrified Philly in the Bronx. These food deserts are flooded with junk food that creates sickness in the body. But what are our other options? How can we move forward and repair the damage that has been done? One way to fight the junk food war is by educating ourselves on how to grow our own food. And that's exactly what Yemi Oku has started to do with her aquaponics production and education company in Brooklyn. Yemi is the baddest sister on the block. Listen as she talks about how working in gardens helped her fight her own depression, what she offers folks who visit her farm, and the future of aquaponics. You will learn so soon so much listening to Yemi. Can you talk to me about
2: kind of what farming looked like for you growing up? So I was born and raised in Lagos, Nigeria. I moved to New York City when I was 16 years old. But Lagos is the center of West Africa. It is a commercial city. It is a densely populated city, 20 million people. But even in this crazy uh, urban jungle, I did grow up surrounded by green. My mother is an avid gardener. It wasn't something that she involved me in, it was like her therapy. (laughs) It was like, you know, when she's in her garden, it's her thing, and the kids were not allowed to be in there. But I was always surrounded by it. And then in middle school and in high school, Um, I studied agricultural science. It was part of our curriculum and I really didn't think much about it. You know, Um, it was something we had to do. So we did it. Um, We had a garden um, in the back of the school. We all had little plots Um, for about three years. We each had our own plot that we um, were responsible for attending to. And again, it was just something fun to do. Honestly, is how um, at least I thought about it at the time is, an opportunity to be outside because you know classes are inside and it always felt so i was that kid that just you know once the teacher opened his or her mouth my i was gone like i was daydreaming somewhere else um so it was just always nice to be outside in the garden um playing i remember in eighth grade they made all of us grow corn and we would hide in the corn fields all the time um people made out in there people like would you know leave class and go hide in there so it was just oh like,
1: my goodness that sounds like a movie <laughs> that sounds like a scene straight from a
2: movie right so you know that was my relationship with green.
1: what led you into starting the farm so and more specifically the the
2: aquaponics yeah so the aquaponics thing I was introduced to aquaponics um, while I was working on a rooftop garden that I helped start um, in 2011. So I was working at a housing facility, permanent housing facility for formerly homeless and mentally ill adults. And part of my work was to guide the residents in developing healthier um, eating habits. So, um, some of it was actually cooking one meal um, a day, five days a week, and then the other aspect was doing workshops with the residents, um, either one on one or group you know some of it was um, doing cooking classes with them or taking them on shopping trips and teaching them how to read food labels, teaching them how to um, you know use their food stamps at the farmers' market, things like that and Um, we started the farm on the roof because we wanted to close that gap, um, between the knowledge that the residents had and access to the healthy food options, um, because that was a huge gap. Like they know they're supposed to eat healthy, um, they're learning all these great ways to eat healthily, um, but how are they able to actually access these vegetables, um, in a consistent manner that is affordable. Uh so that was my that that was when we started the farm. And then we had um neighborhood volunteers that, you know, just loved the idea that there was this rooftop farm in their neighborhood and would come up to volunteer. And one of the volunteers introduced me to aquaponics. It was like, hey, have you ever heard of aquaponics? And I went, uh yeah, I've heard of hydroponics. I'm not interested. <laughs> And then he pushed a little. I was like, no, 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 no. I'm talking about aquaponics. This involves fish. Um, and think about it. You're going to be raising um, a healthy protein option for your residents. And you never have to worry about watering your plants. On top of that, you're recycling water. And that is a part that stood out for me. The recycling of water and the um, being able to provide a healthy source of protein for the residents. And then it like, you know, honestly, it just... I fell into this rabbit hole, and three years later, I had this aquaponics farm in Brooklyn.
1: Oh my goodness, Yemi, you are that inspiration to everyone who has even tried to grow basil in their kitchen. That is absolutely amazing. So I have to ask you this then: kind of starting that work along those lines mm-hmm. with the with the population that you were working with. Mm-hmm underserved communities. Mm -hmm. What do you know about food and and farming
2: playing a role in the process of healing? Good food is the foundation of a healthy life and a healthy body. I feel like this is not stressed enough. It is not something that is taught, like we should all be taught this um, from, you know, from one you can talk and understand words that other people are are saying um because without being able to nourish your body properly there's very little else that you can do um, and food is also the source of our medicine so not only is it nourishing us and giving us the energy we need to be able to get through the day it's also where most of our medicine comes from and we often look to doctors for medicine but they are also like using medicine that comes from the land. <laughs> you know, a lot of these medications are are the main ingredient is it are plants that come from the land. So it's just also intertwined and for the most part for, for for communities of color in the US especially, um we've been cut off from that knowledge. I say all the time that when immigrants come to my farm, whether they're Caribbean or Asian or African, you know, The first thing they talk about is how the different vegetables we're growing is used for healing. It always amazes me that this information is right at their fingertips in a way that it's not for for those of us who live here. Um, And they're usually also older, you know, so it might also be a generational thing. Like, you know, a Caribbean late uh, woman came to the farm the other day and she was like, She was talking about the the pigeon peas that we're growing and she was like, the leaves, you can rinse your eyes with it. If you're having vision problems, you can use it as a blood tonic. You can use it for this. You can use it for that. You know, she was just rattling it off. Um, And we don't have access to that information anymore. And we don't even have um, access to the foods, you know, anymore. Um, We don't have good food in our neighborhoods. I live, you know, in a hood (laughs) in Brooklyn. I work in the hood. And... Even as a farmer, you know, I still go out of my way to get access to healthy food. So I I can imagine um, what other people in other neighborhoods are going through in urban environments where you're just surrounded by junk food. You know, you're surrounded by fast food restaurants everywhere, like literally everywhere on every block, two or three of them. And then on top of that, there's a liquor store. And then on top of that, it's like the bodega selling like, you know, the, the, the processed junk food, there is very little opportunity for us to nourish our bodies and nourish our minds or even learn about how food can also be a, a healing tool, you know, to heal diabetes or heart disease or high blood pressure or even some of the, the um, mental health issues we have. Being in a garden does so much for your mental health and we don't have access to that. Can you talk a little about
1: that? A little bit about the benefits of being in a garden, you know, Mm -hmm. kind
2: of on your mental health specifically. Um, So I'm someone who's had direct experience with this. (laughs) I, you know, suffered from really deep depression that I didn't even realize was depression for most of my 20s and even into my 30s and eating disorder, which actually was tied to the depression. And I didn't understand that. And healing for me didn't come until I was actually working in the land. Once that rooftop garden went up and I was there every day and being amongst the plants every day, it was like I was forgetting myself and having this out-of-body experience every time I realized that, you know what, for the four or five hours or maybe even six hours a day that I'm on this garden, I feel good. I'm not like anxious. I'm not like having these thoughts in my head, you know, this negative thoughts in my head that are feeding my depression. I'm uplifted. I'm, I'm most of the time I'm in awe, honestly, and wonder about what's like going on around me. One of the things that I used to say to myself, you know, and in the garden when I first started is like, I can't believe how amazing nature is. (laughs) Like, this is so beautiful. And this is so amazing. And I'm part of nature, you know, so if nature is this beautiful and this amazing, that I must be this beautiful and this amazing too. And these are the thoughts that I would have all the time. Like this is just an extension of me and there's nothing wrong with me. And all those negative thoughts that I had about myself and who I was in the world would just like disappear. And oftentimes I would carry it with me into my, into the rest of my life. I found myself being more creative. I wanted to draw and paint and all of these things that was also good for my mental health. You know, we talk about healthy food a lot and how people should nourish their bodies. But being in a garden and being around plants um, also nourishes your mind in a way that is equally important.
1: Yes. Thank you so much. That was absolutely brilliant. So uh, kind of along those lines, man, mm-hmm. can you... Talk a little bit about the education that you offer mm-hmm. at Oko Farms.
2: Mm-hmm. So the, the farm was n- meant to be primarily source of education for people, um, myself included and those of us who worked in the site included. So in addition to, to the growing and selling of the food is a byproduct of the educational component. Um, COVID has changed that a little bit where we're doing things online now. Um, but primarily the Farm was the A showcase aquaponics, this form of food production that saves water, recycles fish waste to grow food. So you're getting fish, um, freshwater fish and vegetables and flowers and herbs and fruits at the same time. And you're also saving water. So it was a space to demonstrate that where people could engage with that. Where we could talk about water use in agriculture, we could talk about um, the ocean and what's happening with our oceans and what's happening with like marine life and aquatic animals, and also how and why the um, lives of those aquatic animals matter. Right? Well, how is it connected to our own well-being, um, the human well-being on Earth? Because this is not a conversation that you can have at an average farm, right? You go to an average farm, you're probably going to be talking about soil and how great soil is, um, which is a great thing. But then also it's equally important for us to talk about fish and where it comes from and um, ocean life and what's happening in the ocean and water, how we use water. And there are like parts of the world that don't have access to water to grow food. Um, These are all essential things. You cannot sustain life without water. So My thought was just to really focus on water and the importance of water and why water use and water accessibility should start to be in the forefront of our conversations, along with talking about soil and the importance of soil. Um, And then also I just wanted a space where people could just be in nature and enjoy nature and garden and learn how to garden, especially for young people. I mean, a a lot of young people who don't want to put their hand in the dirt You know, um, I spent like, you know, five years prior to aquaponics working in soil and I would meet so many young people, even some of their teachers who are hesitant to touch soil, but you don't see that with aquaponics. Um, folks are not hesitant to touch the water or to get their hands wet, so to speak. And then you can Mm. see the roots of the plants. You can engage people differently. It's exciting. It's fun. Um, And that really was what the farm is meant to be a space where like people come in and really engage especially school children um and ask all kinds of questions and we can talk about everything you know we can also talk about soil because we do some soil farming and we compare um we do like fun things like blind taste tests or you know like uh, how does something taste in soil versus aquaponics, and can you tell the difference in the taste? Can you tell the difference in the in the smell? We do fun fun things like that. Since COVID, we can't have people in the space um, in the same way, and we've been working really hard on bringing that education online. Um, it's not experiential, but now we're really focused on giving people the tools they need to be able to farm and grow for themselves um, because what COVID did was highlight um, how important that is, you know, people, especially people of color, you need to to know how to grow these foods for yourself. If the supermarket is going to be running out of food, (laughs) if we need to also be able to grow some food for ourselves, regardless of where we live, you know, whether you're in an urban environment, whether you're in a rural environment, whether all you have is a windowsill. Um, How can we support you to be able to grow food for yourself? And that's really been our focus um, since COVID started.
1: So in that sense, education is your focus. Absolutely. Specifically children, you know. yeah. Can I ask you then possibly to to paint a scene for us Mm -hmm. in 10 years Mm -hmm. with all the education that you're doing, right? In 10 years, what does urban farming look
2: like? Mm. I mean,
1: what does, what does our food revolution look like?
2: Wow. If, if I had to um, pick, like, my wildest dream, <laughs> it would be... Yes, your wildest dream. <laughs> it would be for there to be food growing everywhere people are. So I'm talking about schools. Um, all schools having food um, gardens. Um, where we're growing food, we're growing medicinal herbs, we're um, also creating like pollinator habitats, you know, Um, I want to see like food in hospitals as well, healthy, fresh food growing in hospitals, gardens in hospitals, gardens at like places of worship, um, at bodegas, at supermarkets, where people don't have to go far to get access to food, apartment buildings, Um, even offices for people who have the space to do it. Like that, that is my dream. Not only in the US, but you know, in other places around the world. That
1: sounds lovely. So you mean like literally you're leaving your house, walking to the train, and you could potentially pick an apple
2: off of the apple tree. Exactly. Or, you know, you can go like have your doctor's appointment and leave with a bag of produce. (laughs) You know? Yeah. Instead know, of a instead of go a, go a church bill. On, right? You go to church on Sunday or you go to mosque or synagogue, you can leave with produce too.
1: Mm, that sounds lovely. That sounds absolutely lovely. With with so many people right now unemployed or working from home. Mm-hmm. Has the farm seen a lot of action? Like has there been more volunteers or has there been more people who are interested in farming and in in the type of work that you do?
2: Um we have seen a huge uptick in people who just want to learn how to grow food generally. So people who are interested whether it's taking classes on how to grow food using aquaponics whether it's people reaching out and saying, hey, can you do like some like videos on gardening, you know, gardening 101, just, you know, where do I get seeds from? How can I grow in my apartment? Um, I've gotten a lot of those kinds of requests. And and of course, also people who want to come to the farm, we've limited that a little bit just because I am extremely careful. Um, with COVID and not wanting to be responsible for anybody getting sick or me getting sick. Um, But yeah, there's been a huge uptick in folks who want to grow food for themselves and they want to know what that looks like. And we've done like videos, even things like, hey, you can go to the supermarket, um, buy, you know, a sweet potato and you can sprout that sweet potato and, you know, grow it at home and then end up with like tons of sweet potatoes. And you can also eat the sweet potato greens. Um, you can go to the supermarket and buy bell pepper, scoop the seeds out and plant them. So we've been doing like simple things like that and videos for folks, um, and we're going to create like um, a more a more formal series of that for people over the winter season as well, because it's about just getting information at people's fingertips also regardless of what they can or cannot afford. You know, we know that there are some people who can't afford to pay for classes. So making these videos and putting in our website and, you know, making it accessible to people is also important. Mm,
1: that's beautiful. That's so beautiful. Do you feel like this is your calling? Like, is this it for you?
2: Oh, absolutely. I I figured that out when um I was working on the rooftop farm in Crown Heights. I, I you know... Honestly, that farm was kind of started on, I don't want to say a whim, but it was like, listen, people need to have access to food. How do I make it happen? You know, I didn't think too much beyond that. It was like, okay, so what are the ways we're going to do it? And my coworkers were like, well, we can turn the rooftop into a garden, into a farm. And I was like, okay. You know, um, it was after it was all done. And then I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> Like this is amazing. This is beautiful. I feel incredible when I'm up here. I love the changes that I'm seeing in my clients. I should be doing this the rest of my life.
1: That is that is so magical to me. There's something about there's something about When my hands are in the dirt or when I'm walking barefoot outside in the grass, there's something magical that happens. It's terribly difficult to describe, but I I feel it, you know, and I know even with my houseplants, you know, and even with the herbs that I grow in my home, like there is something about the idea of growing, growing something Mm-hmm. and you know it's healthy. Yeah. And there's just some some sort of ownership, right, mm-hmm. over that idea of planting something, watching it sprout, watching it grow and mature. Mm-hmm. That I think black people is, have it's in our blood. It, like it we've is. always <laughs> had that. You know, that's what we do, actually. Yeah. But yeah. now nowadays it's almost I mean, it is truly, truly almost a miracle to find a lot of, especially young Black kids mm-hmm. who, who, like, for example, aren't afraid of, of, like, bugs. Right. Or I went to uh, the botanical garden last year sometime, and there was a group of kids there, like, all Black and brown, and a butterfly came, mm-hmm. this beautiful butterfly, massive, beautiful, at the botanical garden came kind of, you know, just fluttering around them, and they all freaked out out like just started screaming <laughs> and it it was funny at first but then I was like wait these kids should know what a butterfly is these right. kids should, should see butterflies so much that that they don't even think twice about right them. so uh, that's that's something about that something about kind of returning to nature yeah. if you will not necessarily learning for the first time but rather being Maybe a reintroduction, right? Right to to the soil, a reintroduction to the earth.
2: Right, like that's
1: what I see. That's what I'm talking about. When I'm talking about like eating to live,
2: Absolutely. you know what I'm saying? Absolutely. It, it's almost like being. I I think of of being in nature as kind of like being with family. Like it, they, these are your family members, and it's like going home <laughs> for the first time. Yeah, you know, I'm being reintroduced to family that you've never met before, and getting to know them and love them. And there's a connection a- there that doesn't need
1: to be explained. Type of vibe,
2: right? Right.
1: You know, the biggest thing I learned listening to Chef. Kurt Evans and listening to Yemi Oko was was that there there is hope right there is a chance for us to break bread and share strategies on how to swiftly end mass incarceration there is a chance for us to shut down the fast food restaurants and replace them with aquaponic farms and I have a theory on how modern day black diets in many black communities were formed my theory is that most black Americans carry some trauma from being in the fields And that very act of gardening may trigger a post-traumatic slave trauma. Hundreds of years, right, of forced labor, bloody hands, sore backs from hunching under the sun all day long may have put a pause on our sprint to the soil. And somewhere along the line, created a diet that consists of meals so far away from the farm because the farm was the place where our ancestors dreaded. It was where their souls died, you know? And I told my friend this theory, and she said it may be a little bit right. (laughs) But she thinks what caused the generation of junk food consumers was corporate greed. Massive fast food restaurants setting up shop in low-income neighborhoods and cashing in on the poor. Whatever the case, something has been pulling us away from the healing powers of the earth. However, there's a change coming. We are aligning, and we are aligning swiftly. And everything will be okay. I'm Brandon Janice, and you just listened to Sick Empire. If you like what you heard, please go over to Apple Podcasts right now and leave us a five-star review. Tell us what you loved about the podcast. And be sure to tune in next week when I will be talking to two women who have survived mental health traumas and have flipped their lives around, and now they serve other people who are in desperate need of mental health services in underserved communities. I'm Brandon Janice, and this is Sick Empire.